eyes peering at us from the other side, watching, wanting, and waiting, never once taking their gaze off of us, hoping that we notice them. We've all felt their presence, shadows out the corner of our eye, a strange noise you hear when you're walking down the street only to turn around and see nothing, the feeling that someone is watching you sleep. They're nameless. Beings that exist for reasons we'll never comprehend. I call them watchers, for lack of a better term, but ultimately how I refer to them is meaningless. My mom used to tell me stories about how when she was a young girl, her parents would always tell her, if you wake up in the middle of the night, never stare out of a dark window. Of course, this sounded silly to her. There had been many nights where sleeplessness led her to stare out of her apartment window out onto the San Francisco streets below. But one night, out from the seventh floor, she found a pair of eyes that didn't belong to her looking back, and it scared her half to death. When she told my little brother and me this, I was more than skeptical. Logically, it makes sense that sleep deprivation might lead to someone mistaking their own face among a dark black drop as someone else's. However, what really annoyed me as a kid was that she seemed to really take that experience to heart. She made it a point to ensure that the blinds were always drawn when we went to bed. I understand that of all the rules to potentially have, that one is pretty mundane, but when your parents wake you up at 1 a.m. in the morning to lecture you about why you can't forget to close the blinds, it starts to really get on your nerves. I remember one night, my little brother, Donovan, had his friend Clyde over. As young boys do, they decided to stay up late into the night, eating junk food and playing video games. What was supposed to be a harmless night turned chaotic when Clyde sprinted into my room with tears in his eyes. He was babbling about seeing the face of a man in the window. Thinking maybe someone had walked up to the window and scared the boys, I took him by the hand and walked to my brother's room only to find it empty. Confused, I asked him where Donovan was, and he just burst into another wave of tears and pointed back to the window. I immediately sprinted to my mom's room to tell her what was going on. As soon as she had the police on the line, I took off outside screaming for my brother. I kept running and screaming until my lungs and throat were on fire and my legs couldn't carry me anymore. I damn near had to drag myself back home where I saw multiple police cars lined up outside. When I walked in, I was greeted by two officers who assured me they had patrol units searching for my brother and the mysterious man that Clyde had reported. The police sat me down with a sketch artist and showed me what Clyde had described as the man looking like. If the situation wasn't so tragic, I'd almost find it comical. A pale, wrinkled man with an inhumanly wide face staring back at me from this paper. I remember those eyes of his being so damn unnerving. Each deep-set eyeball was perhaps the size of my palm. The deep bags made it appear as if the man hadn't known sleep a day in his life. 
His long mouth stretched nearly from ear to ear, but from his expressionless gaze, it didn't appear as though he was making any attempt to stretch out his lips. It just seemed as if he naturally had a wide mouth, big enough to swallow a football. It just seemed insane. And I told the sketch artist as much. All I really got back was a fake sentiment of understanding and a comment about how the person was most likely wearing some sort of mask. How the fuck are you supposed to find them then? I remember yelling. Drawing a mask does nothing. I was told to calm down. And that because the mask was unique, if anyone saw or knew someone with it on, that'd be a very clear and good lead. In hindsight, I suppose the officer had his heart in the right place, and under normal circumstances he'd be right, but at the time, it felt meaningless. It's hard to really elaborate on the overwhelming pain and depression that comes with having a missing sibling. I think the most important thing to note is that I was obviously in a bad place and had taken to go on late night walks to clear my mind. I'd have to pass my brother's room on the way out the door, and every night, I'd see my mom in there, staring out the window. The pain I felt was deep, but seeing my mom mourning her little boy's disappearance made it that much worse. One night as I was walking out, I heard my mom speaking softly to herself. Curious, I stopped by the doorway and trying to listen in to what she was saying. From what I could hear, I was able to make out, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I wish you, I promise I'll be here every night with you. It was gutting to hear her speak like that. I knew I needed to comfort her, and as I made my way into the room, I caught the reflection in the window, and my eyes went wide as I saw my little brother looking at me from the other side. I screamed and nearly collapsed to the floor. Before my mom could say anything, I bolted to the other side of the window, hoping to hold my sibling again, but when I arrived, there was nothing. I looked at my mom from the other side and she wiped away tears as I tried to understand what was happening. I was lost in disbelief. I saw my brother. He was right there. My mom motioned for me to come back inside. I don't know if it was false hope or something else, but a part of me wanted to stay out there. Part of me felt that there was no way. He wasn't just outside my window waiting for me. The realization that he is... Never there brought new waves of pain. It took a lot of inner strength to even make it back inside the house, but once again, when I made it through that doorway, I saw him in the window staring back at me. Mom, how? I asked weakly. Sit down, child. I remember her saying to me, I have a lot to explain. My mom told me about how, when she had seen the face in her window as a little girl, it tried to take her. A translucent hand stretched the glass like plastic to reach her from the other side of the room. With incredible force, it wrapped bony fingers around her leg, and she could only look in on horror as a man and a woman watched from the other side. The two distorted figures were emotionless as she begged for her life. 
The hand managed to drag her leg through the now permeable window, and she described a great coldness instantly hitting her foot that traveled throughout her entire body. Something told her that even though she wouldn't meet death on the other side, there existed something far worse. She squeezed her eyes shut, just as it had her torso nearly through, and in a last desperate attempt to survive the night, she said she'd give up anything to be spared. To her relief, they seemed to listen, and she was forced out of the window. But to her horror, she watched as the woman stretched towards her out the window like a snake. My mom tried to scurry into a corner, but the woman tracked her every movement and slowly bent down until it was face to face with her. She spoke slowly in an emotionless yet raspy voice. You will give us something. We need it, and we'll be watching. The woman then retracted back to her spot in the window, where she and the man disappeared. My mom claimed that she could always feel the presence in her most private moments from then on. After talking to several family members and friends, she found that her experience wasn't necessarily unique. Though none had such a close encounter, she knew of plenty of people who had seen different figures in their windows and mirrors, and they could have sworn they'd seen people at the corner of their eyes when no one was there. As you'd imagine, that's a familiar feeling we all have. It led her to the conclusion that these people are very likely everywhere. The terrifying truth is that they're watching us all the damn time, and that they're able to perceive our world through some unknown means. Unfortunately, sometimes they're able to also interact, and that interaction is how they were able to speak to Donovan and fulfill the bargain. Ultimately, there was nothing we could do. We couldn't reason with them and explain that regardless of what their world may look like, they can't just take things from ours. And we damn sure couldn't cross over. All we could do was wait to see him. Regardless of that, I stayed with them all night, and from every night on. I made it a point to spend time with my brother. At first he didn't speak, but as time went on he was able to give some really simple responses. However, one night, my mom had to stay at work to do some late-night overtime. I went to my brother's room, as I had always done, and waited to see him in the window. But he never showed up. After an hour of waiting, I figured maybe he just didn't want to talk that night. I figured I'd get ready for bed, and when I went to go brush my teeth, I briefly saw him behind me in the mirror. Momentarily forgetting the circumstances in which we exist, I whipped around and saw nothing. But when I turned back, I saw a faint figure that seemed to resemble my brother, superimposed over my reflection. I strained my eyes to see him and I smiled. Hey Donovan, I said warmly. No response. You okay? What's up? It's cold here, he said. Everything is terrible. I think you'd hate it. Come inside with me. I looked down to see the mirror stretching like plastic as a small hand began to poke through. I screamed and ran out of the bathroom, slamming the door behind me. From that day on, I've made it a point to keep the blinds closed in any house I've lived in. 
I never stare at my reflection, and I damn sure don't turn around when I can faintly feel someone walking behind me. For all I know, that's not my brother anymore. Maybe it never was. Either way, I'm terrified of who I have watching me now. I don't know what they need from this world or why my brother wants me to go with them, but I'm so fucking scared that he'll find a new way to take me. I'm afraid that all it takes is one slip up for him to find me and I'll be stuck in that horrible place with him. Now all I can do is share my personal experiences. From what I know, the best thing to do is to not get noticed in the first place. Perhaps so long as you don't draw their attention, they'll leave you alone. Maybe they're even incapable of doing something if you generally don't pay them any mind. If that's the case, then please, please listen to me when I say, don't stare out your fucking window. I was a reader for two years before I met Elliot Stoffel. A reader is just what it sounds like. I read to the elderly and the disabled several days a week. The pay was never great, but I enjoyed the work, and there was no denying it would look good on my application to graduate school. There was a time meeting an esteemed sociology professor like Stoffel would have been exciting. We actually used one of his books in an undergrad class I had junior year. But that man... Whoever he had been seemed long gone when I first met the shattered ruin he had become. Stofel was supposed to be in his early 50s, but the man looked past 70, at least. And while the professor's books and reputation sociology circles made him out to be a very articulate, intelligent man, the pitiful figure before him facilitated between long bouts of drooling, dead-eyed silence and brief interludes of incoherent screaming and thrashing about at some new imagined horror. The company I worked for would get brief medical condition summaries on prospective clients along with emergency contacts and known allergies. We were not allowed to give any care or aid under our contract, but depending on the client, some readers got combat pay meaning they were going into a home in a dangerous area or with a potentially combative client. Stofil paid the extra money. His file said he suffered from nonspecific delusional ideation, perception complex, and moderate catatonia. Beneath this, someone had written, Hallucinations, Paranoid Schizo. I knew what all that meant, but it didn't really prepare me for what he was like. Most of my time as a reader had been with sweet little old ladies or people who needed company as they recovered from a debilitating injury. Not a madman that rolled his eyes fearfully toward the corner of a room as I read to him, his lips trembling as he closed his eyes tight against something only he could see. His primary caretaker was his younger sister, Hillary. She was a kind and pretty woman who, if not exactly friendly, was at least always pleasant and polite as she headed out the door, off to take advantage of the break I was giving her. It wasn't until I was there for over a month that I saw what a toll it was taking on her. I'd gone into the kitchen to tell her I was leaving for the day. This was the first time she'd stayed home when I came, but I hadn't glimpsed her after she initially let me in. 
When I stepped into the kitchen, I saw her sitting at the table, her lips thin and her eyes sunken. I found myself surprised at her expression to the point that, before I could reconsider, I asked her if anything was wrong. She gave me a small laugh and gestured toward where her brother lay in the other room. Aside from that? Aside from him? No. Everything else is just peachy. She glanced up at me, and as she said the last, her gaze softened slightly. Sorry, I didn't mean to take it out on you. I shook my head. No need to apologize. I I know handling all this is hard. Is there anyone to help? She stared off wistfully. No. Our parents are dead, and neither of us has married. When he came back from his trip on the medical transport plane, none of his professor buddies even bothered to show up or visit. It's like he's already dead to them. Bunch of jealous, selfish assholes. Talking to her, I felt like I was walking across an unfamiliar frozen lake. I wanted to go further out, but I had no way of knowing where the thin spots might be. After a moment of silent debate, my curiosity won out. What happened to him? Did he just have a breakdown? Hillary studied me for several seconds before gesturing to the chair across from her. No one knows for sure. I know he had gone to stay with a primitive tribe in the Amazon rainforest. The Utgatu, I think is how you say it. He'd gone before, and though they generally didn't care for outsiders, over a few years they had grown to tolerate him well enough. She looked down at her folded hands and sighed. Apparently he was much more coherent when he first reached civilization after his latest trip. He told a colleague that he had gone through the first step of a purification ritual during his stay. The ritual was supposed to take three days in total, but after the first night he woke to learn that the tribe's holy man had died in his sleep. After that... No one would even talk to him or even acknowledge his existence outside of making him a sign to ward off evil. After three days of trying to get back into their good graces, he had headed back out of the jungle. By this point, he was already acting really strange, and within another week, he was much like you see him now. She sniffled. They don't really know what's wrong with him. I looked at his notes, but they were mainly gibberish as far as I could tell. The most I could make out was that during the first part of the ritual, the holy man said a phrase in Elliot's right ear while holding something he calls a whisper box against his left. My brother said the box made a strange sound, and he seemed to think that the combination of that with the sounds of the words the holy man spoke somehow flipped a switch in his brain to make him see things. He was trying to find a way to reverse it when he slipped into a fit and then became more like what you see now. A shell of the man I knew. I didn't know how to respond. The story was interesting but seemed very far-fetched. Odds are, I thought, he'd been slipping towards insanity for years and when he finally had a break from reality, this hocus-pocus was the form it took. After sitting through an awkward silence, I said I had to be going and let myself out. 
It was a few days later, when I was back reading Stofel, The Great Gatsby, that I noticed a small wooden box on the table near him. I tried to focus on the Fitzgerald book, but my eyes kept being drawn back to that box. It wasn't overly ornate or special looking, but the box had an odd luster, and I found myself wondering if this could be the whisper box Hillary had told me about. Had he somehow brought it back with him? I told myself to stop being stupid, but after another 30 minutes of trying and failing to get my mind off of it, I sat down the book. We were alone in the house, but I still looked around as I reached for the box. I had no intention of stealing it, but I did want to see what it was. See if it opened it, what was inside. If it made any odd noises. There was no lid or way to open it, and giving it a slight shake produced no rattle from inside. Still, it was much heavier than I'd expected, so I didn't think it was a solid piece of wood. There was something else inside. I gave Stoffel a cursory glance, but he was just staring off into space, a thin thread of spit stretching an impossible length between his pajama shirt and his lower lip. He wouldn't mind me messing with his box a bit more. So, I stuck it to my ear. The sound was immediate as soon as the box was close to my ear. He reminded me of that sound a rain stick makes, but much higher pitched. While the noise itself wasn't unpleasant, I felt my vision beginning to swim. I went to pull the box away when my hand covered my own and pressed it back against my head as I heard Hillary speaking into my other ear. Weasel. Dish. Firelight. Thimble. Amber. Jack. Chimney. By the time I was able to react and move my head, she'd already finished, and whatever she had done, I knew something was wrong. I looked up at her, my eyes seeming to gain and lose focus moment to moment. What did you... What did you do to me? She stepped back almost as though she thought I might attack her, but I could barely stand. Something that I hope will help my brother. I'm sorry, I really am. I wish there was another way, or that it had been that nasty nurse that Elliot first had once he got home instead of you. But I just figured out the words, you see. It's not just the sounds of the words you have to replicate. You have to understand the words, too. Elliot, he understood the Ugatu language. For you... I had to find English words with the same sounds. It really was a challenge. Now I considered attacking her after all. She had done something to me and now was patting herself on the back instead of answering me. Did, did you do the puri, purification thing on me? She cast her eyes down like a schoolgirl caught cheating. I did. Or the first part, which is all I had, of course. Though, I may have fibbed on that part. According to Elliot's notes, the Yugata called it Tazit Chirhaumi, 
I think it means the purity of join. That may be off, though. She shrugged. Who knows? Bunch of superstitious nonsense, regardless of how effective the technique may be at. She stopped as her face lit up with a brilliant smile. I turned to see Elliot Stofel reaching for me, his hands like iron as they closed around my neck. I tried to struggle, but everything was swimming. I felt like I was moving through the darkening waters of some deep midnight sea, and his grip tightened. I watched the world fall away. When I awoke, I was at a bus stop ten miles away. I could see and move better, but I knew something was still wrong. I wasn't sure what until I was a few minutes down the road on the north side bus. Two of the people on the bus were monsters. I first noticed it when I glanced back and saw one bending down to get candy out of her purse. The second, who looked even more hideous, was a man sitting in the back with worms crawling in and out of his face. It took all I had not to scream, and after getting off at the next stop, I walked the rest of the way home. Not that that was any better. I saw terrible shapes in the shadow of houses as I passed, and more than once I thought I saw glowing eyes of a nearby ditch or storm drain. That was two weeks ago, and I've barely left my apartment since. The last time was last Thursday, and it ended with me running from the grocery store after seeing red crystalline eggs hatching from a young woman's chest. Not that my apartment was much better. As I write this, I can see the giant spider looking at me from the corner of my room. You would think that I can control myself better, convince myself that none of it's real, but I can't. It all seems realer than real. And certainly realer than reason or memory. I try not to look directly at the spider. It's been around for the last couple of days and I try to ignore it. But it likes to get places where I have to look. Where it can startle me with its presence. I'm getting weak from not eating. Half my food seems rotten or corrupted. But I know I have to keep my strength up. I don't want to appear too frail. This morning, I think there were the start of webs across my face and chest when I woke up. I don't want the spider thinking it is getting time to collect me and carry me down into some dark and terrible hole. I wrote this to remind myself not to give in, to not be crazy, to find a way to fix whatever that bitch broke in my brain. I know it can be done because just yesterday I read about how Elliot Stoffel made a miraculous recovery I was going to return teaching in the spring she has to fix me too but for now I need to get up I lost track of the spider and then realized he's moved to the wall behind me he's waiting for something but I don't understand what I hope I don't find out